Man, they do a good job. Oh. Every week, they do such a good job. Uh, let's see. We are continuing on in our sermon series called Baby Steps. And if you wanted to summarize the whole series, you could probably get it there in that one line, I am no longer a slave to fear, I am a child of God. That when we talk about the good news of Jesus Christ, we are talking about how our relationship with Him, our fellowship with Him, moves us from a place of sin and death, of being afraid of our future and what we are or what we are becoming, to being a people who know that our identity is as a child of God, to be one of God's children. And um, if you think way, way back to when I started this series, we talked about how when we're born in this world, uh, we are a people who are slaves not only to fear but to sin and death, that we're not born ready, we're born rather helpless, and we need God to intervene in our lives, to act on our behalf in order to free us for the good things that are pleasing to God. And along the way, I've encouraged you to consider that reality, to trust in what God is doing in your life. Last week, we talked about even beginning the work of making things right between you and other people. And as you think through those steps that I'm no longer a slave to sin and death, a slave to fear, I am moving toward trusting in God more and more with my life, my sins, my faults, my mistakes, all that I am, and that uh, each day, each step along the way is moving me toward what? Well, there you go. That's the next step. The what? what what's next? What do we talk about when we say, where are we headed? Why does this even matter? You know, uh, that many times if we are uh, separated from the idea of what this all comes to or where this all ends up, uh, then the steps kind of seem pointless. Like, why bother? Why pray? Why read our scriptures? Why help others? Sure, they're good in themselves, but what it ultimately is it going to do? And I know, I know there's many of you that are like, well, it's all worth it. The beauty of the songs, the beauty of the singing, the, the fellowship, the, the journey is all in its good, but I am a diehard pragmatist, right? I want to know, what's it doing? How's this going to work, right? And so today, uh, it's not so much a step as it is a direction, a this is why we do these things that we do. And... Um, I'm going to read a scripture in just a moment. It's in your bulletin, so it's not as surprising as it might be if you read ahead. But if I had just randomly opened up my New Testament, put my finger down, and said, I'm going to try and find the most difficult story I can to preach, I could not do much better than what I did today. I've been reading it all week going, what am I thinking? Because it is one of the tougher scriptures in the Bible, uh, especially when it comes to the world we live in today. So, without much more of a setup, uh, we are going to look at Luke chapter 19. Last week, Zacchaeus, Luke chapter 19, one of the most gracious stories in the Bible. Uh, the rich tax collector is chosen by Jesus to be the one that hosts him. He, he has a revelation. He says, I'm going to give half of what I have to the poor. I'm going to pay back everybody else four times over. It's wonderful. You know, cue the credits. It's all good, right? And then we get to this story that's in here. 
And this is Luke chapter 19, and if you've got your Bibles, Luke 19, 11. Uh, so everything good that had happened with Zacchaeus just happened, and then Jesus says this. It says, as they listened to this, Jesus told them another parable because he was near Jerusalem, and they thought God's kingdom would appear right away. He said, a certain man who was born into royalty went into a distant land to receive his kingdom and then returned. He called together ten servants and gave each of them money worth four months' wages. He said, do business with this until I return. His citizens hated him, so they sent a representative after him who said, we don't want this man to be our king. After receiving his kingdom, he returned and called the servants to whom he had given the money to find out how much they had earned. The first servant came forward and said, your money has earned a return of 1,000%. The king replied, excellent. You are a good servant because you have been faithful in a small matter. You will have authority over 10 cities. The second servant came and said, master, your money has made a return of 500%. To this one, the king said, you will have authority over five cities. Another servant came and said, master, here is your money. I wrapped it up in a scarf for safekeeping. I was afraid of you because you were a stern man. You withdraw what you haven't deposited, and you harvest what you haven't planted. The king replied, I will judge you by the words of your own mouth, you worthless servant. You knew, did you, that I am a stern man, withdrawing that I didn't deposit and harvesting what I didn't plant? Why then didn't you put my money in the bank? Then when I arrived, at least I could have gotten it back with interest. He said to his attendants, Take his money and give it to the one who has ten times as much. But master, they replied, he already has ten times as much. He replied, I say to you that everyone who has will be given more, but from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for my enemies who don't want me as their king, bring them here and slaughter them before me. After Jesus said this, he continued on ahead going up to Jerusalem. So that's the story we're going to look at today, this wonderful parable that Jesus teaches. And um, I just want to go ahead and point out, name, go ahead and, and say, here's the elephant in the room when it comes to this scripture. It's that second to last line. It says, bring my enemies to me and slaughter them in front of me. Did any of y'all have that on a plaque in your kitchen? Probably not, right? It is a tough word, a tough thing for us to hear, and um, when we hear it, I don't know about you, but I immediately kind of think about, well, he's kind of pointing toward eternal judgment, toward the final time in which our lives are judged by God, and then there's, you know, what happens next. And uh, in this particular passage, it doesn't specifically say it, but in the back of my mind, and maybe yours as well, is the idea of hell, right? Eternal damnation. Uh, that's what I read when I, when I see this, and it's backed up by the scriptures. And I, I wanted to go ahead and name that because, well, there's just not too many Christian teachings that upset people in our world today than that one. Uh, the idea of hell, the idea of eternal torment, of a lake of fire, um, is not only troubling, but it's especially troubling when people begin to say, well, if you do that, then that is the result. 
Um, and many of you here today are going, well, there you go. Right there, Pastor Rick. That's everything that is wrong with the Bible right there. You could just stop there and we could say, and we could disagree and say, is it really something that we should take seriously? Is it something that we should think about in terms of it being a true reality? Or is that really what Jesus meant? Many times when people will come to me or other pastors and they'll say, hey, do you really believe in hell? I mean, the whole lake of fire torment thing. There's a pastor named Tim Keller, and he said, um, when people ask him that, he'll say, no, 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 no. It's, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol. And he'll pause, and they'll kind of exhale, like, whew. And he'll go, it's a, it's a metaphor. It's a symbol for something far worse than you could possibly imagine. <laughs> and uh, many times today, people would would kind of look at it and say, well, that's what's wrong with it. You know, that's what's wrong with the scriptures, this idea of a, a mean and angry God who is just out to punish us. Um, that's what's wrong with the Bible, you know, or that's what's wrong with Christian faith. But when you really begin to think about it, it is not only an important doctrine, but it's actually one that brings about peace in our world. And, and it's not in the way that you think, okay? And, um, but, but let's look at the scripture a little bit closer and talk about why this is important. It says, it says, as they listened to this, Jesus told them the parable, a certain man who was born into royalty went to a distant land to receive his kingdom and then returned. He called together his servants. And um, you, we go through the list, right? The first servant uh, he's been faithful. He takes the talents, four, month, four months' worth of wages, and he is successful with it. He turns it into a 1,000% turnover. Second servant, very similar, 500%. Uh, both times, the king is happy. He's like, hey, you did a great job. Thank you for my money. You're now over these 10 cities, which would have been an even larger fortune for those people. And then we get to the third one, who's really the crux of the story, right? We get to the third one who has given the same amount as the first two servants, and what does he say? He's got that money, that uh, amount of stuff, you know, up in a scarf, and in my mind, you know, he's put it in his desk drawer, closed the drawer, and gone on to whatever it is that he does with his time, right? You know, he, he's been given the same gift as anybody else, and rather than use it in a way that is profitable to his king, uh, he just leaves it there. And then when he's held accountable for it, when the king returns, uh, what does he say? He says that, um, I was afraid. I was afraid of you because you're a stern man. You withdraw what you haven't deposited and you harvest what you haven't planted. The king replied, I will judge you by the words of your own mouth you worthless servant, you knew, did you, that I'm a stern man withdrawing what I didn't deposit and harvesting what I didn't plant? Why then didn't you put my money in the bank? Then when I arrived, at least I could have gotten it back with interest. And um, it's so, so fascinating to me, the words of this servant. What does he say? I had what you had given me, but I was, I was afraid. I, I was fearful. And then he goes on to say, you're a stern man. You withdraw what you didn't deposit. You harvest what you didn't plant. 
You know, and so in the servant's mind and his way of looking at the world, he knew the king would have that authority. You know, this king has a special kind of authority that you and I don't have, right? We can't go to the bank and withdraw other people's money. You can't do that, folks. And, and it's not right for us to go and collect crops that we didn't plant, you know, unless we're given permission. But this king has authority over all that. He can go and withdraw what he didn't put there, and he can harvest what he didn't plant. And that the servant knew that, right? And when you look at this particular passage, uh, not only does that happen, but he goes on, and he says, well, here's my judgment. He said, he said to the tenants, take his money and give it to the one who has ten times as much. But master, they said, he already had ten times as much. I say to you that everyone who has will be given more, but from those who have nothing, even that will be taken away. Uh, so, you know, I mean, we see that, we understand it. As a king, he expected something from his servants. One of them doesn't produce, and that servant loses even what he had been given, right? Okay, y'all get the story, right? And you're now thinking, what does that have to do with the price of gas in Beaumont, right? But here's the thing. When you think about your life and the life of people that you know, um, one of the things that I bump into quite often are people or ideas who think life really doesn't matter. That they don't understand why life has any significance. They kind of think to themselves, I'm here today, I got a job, I'll be gone in a few months, or a few years, or a few decades. That rather than their life being something that is significant, that has an idea that the small details of our lives, the small matters of our life matter, instead of that, they look at their lives and they say, it really doesn't amount to much. And when you look at this passage, you actually find an answer to that. And here's where. You know that servant, that final one, and he says, I was afraid, I was fearful. What is he really trying to do? He's really trying to protect his comfort. I think he didn't want to do the work. And he didn't want to suffer any kind of consequences rather than take a risk, live a little, try something, be faithful. He just wanted things to be safe and secure and steady and normal. And there's a Danish philosopher who I know you all love and celebrate named Soren Kierkegaard. <laughs> you love to drink a cup of coffee and read Kierkegaard. But... Um, he had this really profound insight about our lives. He said, sin, that which separates us from God, is building our life on anything other than God. Building our life on anything other than God. That servant built his life around comfort, along security, around the idea that his life was going to be the same forevermore. And you and I may not do that. We may build our lives on other things. And 
it's an endless list of things that we can build our life upon other than God, right? Money, success, achievement, security, prosperity. I mean, you think about even religion. Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees when it came to the fact that they had built their life upon religion, divorced from God. They had a religious system that kept score, that had rituals, that kept them perpetually trying and achieving to do better than other people, and yet it was so far from God that Jesus would not even tolerate it. And so Kierkegaard, anything we build our life upon other than God will separate us from God, will, is sin. You remember how he ended the Sermon on the Mount, how Jesus ended the Sermon on the Mount? The wise man built his house upon the rock. Come on, y'all went to Sunday school. The foolish man built his life upon the sand. Storms came up, the winds came down, and the building came tumbling down, right? I think that's two songs together, right? <laughs> but he's saying anything that you build your life on other than God. And so when we talk about eternity, that that building process, that setting a foundation can begin in a very small way that ultimately leads to us being far, far, far from God. You know, C.S. Lewis put it in terms of it starts with just a small grumble about life, you know, just your everyday, ordinary, run-of-the-mill grumble about life. You're like, oh God, why do you allow this to happen? And that grumbling turns into an hour-long grumble, to a day-long, to a week-long, spirals out of control, and pretty soon you have no interest at all in worshiping God, being near God, and definitely not spending eternity with God. Same thing happens with addiction, right? Even the most full-blown alcoholic, drug-addicted, whatever-they-are-addicted-to person begins with one hit, one take, one, one drink, one click of the mouse on the Internet, turns into something that is an all-consuming fire of their life that separates them from their loved ones in ways they never imagined when they first started out. And so when we talk about separation from God and eternal separation from God, I think C.S. Lewis puts it right. It says, hell begins with people closing the doors of their own prison on themselves. That when you get to the final judgment, the final time in life, and um, you've spent your entire life rejecting God, not believing in God, hating God, all of that, that God just says those words in the Lord's Prayer, Thy will be done. You don't want to spend eternity with me? That's on you. So, what do we do with that? Well, the idea of Spending life apart from God and spending eternity from God, that's one of those things that oftentimes used, is used to create fear or to try and get people to behave, right? You shouldn't do that because you'll end up in hell, right? And that there's many, many hellfire and brimstone sermons that are out there that are meant to change or convict people or help them come to Jesus. And my experience is they may work temporarily, but long-term, they fail, right? It's an important teaching, but it's not one that's meant to scare us into following God. 
Instead, it's an important teaching to remind us of who God is. And let's just pause for a moment. And let me just share from my own personal life why that teaching matters to me. Why the teaching that God is our judge and the one who has our eternal fate in his hands. Why that matters so much to me. And uh, it's a very simple story and one that you can probably relate to. There are uh, people that are in this world, have been part of my life, uh, and one in particular did some very horrible things to somebody that I love very dearly, all right? You don't get the specifics. That's my life. But let's just say there's somebody alive and breathing who did some very horrible things to people that I love, and they got away with it, all right? They will never stand trial for what they did. And even though it completely devastated the person that I love life, right, uh, had a significant impact on the rest of their future, that person pretty much got off scot-free, right? And what has brought me such comfort and such peace of mind in that is to know that one day they will have to stand in front of God. And they will have to explain what they did. And God will hold them accountable for that. Now, I know you're probably thinking, I rejoice in the idea of them burning in hell. And there have been those days, right? But if God wants to set those people free, invite them into heaven, that's up to God. But because I know that God has their judgment in his hands, and that God holds their eternal future in his hands, I can let go of that. It's not my burden. I can forgive them. I can let them live their lives. I cannot send them any Christmas cards because I know that God has that. And on a, a broader scale, on a, on a grander scale, there's a famous theologian named Miroslav Volf, who I know you all love, uh, Miroslav Wolf, he's a teacher at Yale, I believe, right now. Uh, before that, he grew up in Croatia. And if you're familiar with the history of Croatia, it is an area that saw a great deal of devastation, uh, genocide, uh, horrible, horrible things that went on during the time that he was growing up. And um, he said it was like this, that one group would go into a town or a village and they would utterly destroy it. Uh, not only would people lose their lives, but all kinds of atrocious war crimes would happen, all kinds of things that just make you hate and fear for the life of humanity. You think, how could people ever do something like that on such a large scale? And so that would happen. One group would go in, and all those people would say to themselves, we can't allow this to happen. We must go back and take revenge. And this went on and on and on for decades in the Balkans. And Miroslav Volf, in a very unique way, he, he said it this way. He said, you would think that all those people, if you listen to the commentaries of our world today, you would think all of those people were following a God that they believed was going to be wrathful and hateful and ugly and mean and all those things that people fear in our world today. But he said the opposite was what was true. 
Those people had no fear of a God who would bring about judgment. They had no concern about a God who had eternity in his hands. They had no inkling or idea that God would possibly be able to bring justice to the situation, and so they felt it was on them to do something in response. And instead of having the idea of a God who would take the future in his hands, they took the matters into their own, and the violence just continued on and on and on and on. And so that's why he says very clearly, he says, it's easy, it's so easy when you're in a safe, secure home in the suburbs to just let go of the doctrine of judgment and eternity because you're comfortable, you're safe. He says it cannot be done in streets and in towns where there's been great bloodshed and violence if you ever want to see that to stop. So, one last thing, and it's the last sentence. It says, after Jesus said this, he continued on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Uh, the idea of a God who holds the future in his hands, holds judgment in his hands, really can bring about hope and healing for our lives and in the future. But there's this last part there that's so important. He says, he was going on to Jerusalem, right? Jesus is going on to Jerusalem. And what happens in Jerusalem? He dies. He is beaten. He is scourged. He is handed over to the authorities. He is executed at the hands of the Roman government. That's what happens in Jerusalem. And when you talk about a king judging people, I don't know about you, but there's something that I'm willing to give over because, not because I'm afraid of that king, are fearful of that king, but because this king is different. This king changes our world not with fear of damnation, not with fear of judgment, not with fear of pain or anything like that. This king changes our world with love. That this king knows that our hearts and our lives, our steps, are all transformed and guided not by fear of being slaves to sin and death, but by a vast love. What kind of love? The kind of love that goes to the cross and dies for us. Now, I grew up Methodist, and one of the things we learned how to do as a Methodist church was say the Apostles' Creed. Many of you know the Apostles' Creed. I'm just going to read, recite for you the beginning of it, because I know it backwards and forwards, because I said it every week in church growing up, right? I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in his only Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under, was crucified, dead, and buried. And then there's an asterisk in the Methodist hymnal, an asterisk. And it's this little notation that if you look at the bottom of page 881 in the United Methodist hymnal, it says the following. 
he descended into hell. And somewhere along the way, I didn't have time to research why, somewhere along the way, somebody, I think, decided, that's offensive. You know I'm right. Somebody along the way said, that's offensive. He descended into hell, which it's in the Bible. He descended into hell. And I, I was thinking this morning, that is a shame. Because if lives and hearts are changed by the love of God in Jesus Christ, a great love, not a callous love or an indifferent love or a kind of authority that doesn't care about any of us, but a, a love that would be willing to descend into hell, then that has a power like none other. That is the kind of love that I can stand before on that day of judgment, look to the throne, look to the Jesus who is my King and my Lord, and he will say, what have you done with the talents and the gifts and the abilities that I gave you? And I would say, I hope and I pray, I'd say, by the grace of God, I did everything I could for you who descended into hell for me and my salvation and the salvation of the world. To stand before the lamb that was slain and say, because of what you have done, what you have done for my world, I gave my all for you. Judge me, judge my world, because you alone are worthy to do so. You alone pay the ultimate price, the one who gave the greatest cost to take what he didn't deposit, to reap what he didn't sow, and to say, it is finished. A new world, a new heavens shall be gone, and all tears shall be wiped away because of the one who alone is able open the scrolls and to begin all things new. That is why eternity matters. That is why I want him to judge my life and my world because he loves me. And he loves you. And he loves all the people in other religions all the people that doubted him, all the people who rejected him, loves each and every one of them and loves them enough to die for them, to forgive them, and to welcome them into his kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we are in awe of you and what you have done for each of us. We have our ideas of right and wrong. We have our notions of what is just and what is good. But Lord, your ways are higher than ours. Your thoughts are greater than ours. Your plans are far better than anything that we could come up with. We thank you, Lord, that you have met us here today that no matter what we have done or whatever mistakes we are in or whatever struggles we are facing, Lord, you love us and you love us so dearly that you would even descend into the depths of hell to save us and to redeem us and that you would do that for the whole world. We pray, Lord, in this time that you would help us to 
consider our lives, to be reminded that you care about even the small matters, the details. Each moment of our lives matters to you.